0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. In terms of what is being discussed right now, I would say
1: the $1.2 trillion elephant in the room is SNAP, and so the 2023 Farm Bill is estimated to be the most expensive Farm Bill in U.S. history over the course of 10 years' worth of outlays.
0: This week on the show, we're talking about the importance of the upcoming Farm Bill. Our guest is Shelley Suttles agriculture economist at the O'Neill School for Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. Stay with us. In a recent episode of All Things Considered, Juana Summers spoke with Megan Sandell, co-director of the Boston Medical Center's Grow Clinic, which focuses on treating malnutrition issues in children. She described a typical family that she sees in her clinic, a parent sometimes working two jobs with a child that's not reaching expected points on the growth curve. And the parent is struggling between putting food on the table with increasing prices, or paying rent, which has also gone up. It is a heartbreaking scenario that no parent ever wants to face. It is why SNAP exists. SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, what they used to call food stamps. Megan Sandel pointed out that SNAP is the largest anti-hunger program in the US, calling it, quote, an evidence-based tool for ensuring that families put food on the table. In the pandemic, SNAP was one of the ways the government supported households when many people couldn't work. They increased the monthly dollar amounts, which has made a huge difference for families facing rising food prices due to inflation. Sandel noticed that increases in SNAP benefits have a positive effect on children's growth. This was documented in the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009. When they boosted SNAP, child growth improved. When they cut it back, she says, quote, we saw kids stop growing, being in fair to poor health, and their caregivers being in fair to poor health. Sandel goes on to say that the first three years of life, that's the period with the most rapid growth in terms of brain and body. When kids miss out on key nutrition in that window, it's difficult to catch up. The pandemic increases in SNAP benefits have improved childhood nutrition as they did in 2008. And now they're expiring and returning to the pre-pandemic levels. This has people like Megan Sandel and the family she works with at the Grow Clinic very worried. SNAP is a big topic on Capitol Hill right now. And when I say big, I'm talking $1.2 trillion big. 2023 is a farm bill year and funding for SNAP is a significant part of the farm bill and that's putting it mildly. On the show today, to help us make sense of the farm bill is Dr. Shelley Suttles. I'm Shelley
1: Suttles, I'm an assistant professor at the O'Neill
0: School of Public and Environmental Affairs here at IU. I wanted to start out by hearing about her field and how she got into agriculture research. My research is in
1: agricultural economics. So my training is in agricultural economics. I have my PhD in agricultural economics, but it typically has two different strains within agricultural economics. So one strain is kind of environmentally focused, thinking about agricultural production and its impact on climate change and how climate change impacts it. I've done research in the past looking at dedicated energy crops, agroforestry, and kind of those uh, nature-based climate solutions if you could consider them to be uh, that. I know there is some debate uh, lately about that. And then another vein of my research is more socioeconomic, so thinking about uh, food access, food insecurity, and food environments of consumers across the United States. Can you tell me the story of what drew you to study food and agriculture? That is a great question. So I would say uh, it was definitely being in the Peace Corps. So I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. I had no background in agriculture uh, whatsoever. To start off Peace Corps, you get sent to some city in the United States before they send you overseas, and they call this staging. And so we had staging in Miami, and I packed all my bags, very excited to move to Guatemala for two years. And, you know, when I got to staging, other volunteers were asking me, what were you going to do? And I was like, oh, I'm going to be a Peace Corps volunteer. They're like, we're all going to be Peace Corps volunteers. Crazy. Crazy. What are you doing? (laughs) And I was like, Oh, I don't know. They haven't told me. How do you know? And they're like, It's in the gigantic packet of information they sent you. I said, Oh, I didn't read it. I just brought it with me. And I opened it up at the table there, and it said sustainable agriculture, livestock production. And I am from Los Angeles, California. And I was like, What are they thinking? Why would they (laughs) put me in this? cohort but it was the time of my life i very much enjoyed livestock production uh, you know working with guatemalan women and households On a variety of different production activities, so chicken production, rabbit production, thinking about, uh, you know, supplying uh, medical kits to the women so they could generate revenue from, you know, vaccinating chickens or other uh, livestock around town. So it was the best two years I could have ever imagined. Uh, But when it was time for me to come home at the end of my service, I thought, you know, how can I... Be helpful, you know. I, I don't necessarily always want to be overseas, you know. What can I do to really contribute to the cause? And I thought, you know, maybe I'll study agricultural economics. I feel like, you know, that's a gift I can share with people. You know, I have some basic understanding of math and science. I can study this, and then maybe I can continue to be helpful to the people across the world who may need research on these topics. And so that's how I found myself uh, going to graduate school uh, for agricultural economics.
0: Wow. So. I I guess I would like to hear just a little bit more about the field of
1: agricultural economics. Yeah. So at the time, you know, when I was done with Peace Corps, I was deciding two tracks. I was really interested in veterinary science uh, because, you know, I was a livestock volunteer in, in Peace Corps. But then, you know, I thought, well, agricultural economics is more broad. You know, there are a variety of different opportunities to study different types of research with agricultural economists or professors at uh, land-grant universities across the country. And so I would say it's just any form of uh, applied economics. So there's kind of Theoretical economics, which you would think about, you know, maybe Ben Stein doing some funny commercial as an economist, uh, those kind of economists. But then there's also a supplied economist. So a variety of different topics, agriculture, health, you really name it, education. You know, there's most likely an applied economist thinking about that social topic as well.
0: So when you were in the Peace Corps, it was really hands on, like you were working with people who were working with animals and you were working with the animals. Yeah. That must have been such a shock (laughs) if you had no experience with that.
1: (laughs) No, yeah, so Peace Corps gives you, uh, so when you're a livestock volunteer, and I don't know if they do this to this day, but when we got sent, there's a medical book that Peace Corps sends you to site with. It's called Where There Is No Doctor. And when you're a livestock volunteer, you get a companion called Where There Is No Vet. (laughs) And so they're just like, here are two books you can read. Go figure it out. So And the times, you know— and this, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself. There was no Internet. Oh, wow. Um, So, I, you know, I had no access to a phone or anything of that nature to be able to kind of quickly on the sly look it up. So I had to tell people, you know, I don't know now, but, you know, give me a day and I'll go flip through this uh, where there is no vet book and we'll find something, you know. I've had more rabies shots than anybody could ever imagine, just from animals dying after I've stuck my hand into it and said, oh, we don't know how it died. I said, well, I'd probably go get a rabies shot just in case.
0: Well, yeah, that sounds like quite the Peace Corps experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking with agriculture economist Shelley Settles here on Earth Eats. After a quick break, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the Farm Bill, which is up for renewal this year. Stay with us. Kate Young here, this is Earth Eats, and we're back with Shelly Suttles. She's an agriculture economist at the O'Neill School of Environmental Affairs here at Indiana University, also known as SPIA. I invited her on the show today to talk about the U.S. Farm Bill and why we should be paying attention to its renewal in Congress this year. We've talked about the Farm Bill on our show in the past, but for our listeners who might not be familiar, can you explain in a nutshell, I guess, what what the Farm Bill is?
1: Yeah, so the Farm Bill is an omnibus piece of legislation we have here in the United States, and it has two main goals— One goal is to provide a farm safety net for U.S. farmers, and the second goal is to provide a food safety net for U.S. consumers. So that's why we see commodity programs, conservation programs, things really oriented towards agriculture, but we also see a set of programs like SNAP and WIC and uh, the Emergency Food Assistance Program that are more, uh, you know, tailored towards that food and nutrition assistance for residents.
0: Could you say what an omnibus? Uh, so I imagine an
1: attorney invented that word omnibus. You know, it's probably legalese. It just means big. It has many parts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How often is is it renewed? So it's renewed every four to five years, depending
0: kind of on the politics of the country at that time. Can you talk about some of the policy movement that has happened historically around the Farm Bill?
1: Yeah, so definitely, you know, if we think about historically, the the first Farm Bill was the Agricultural Act of 1933. And that was the time, you know, during the Great Depression. But many more Americans were farmers then. So, you know, a larger percentage of the average household was, you know, directly involved in agriculture during that time period. So we saw many more farm programs. So as time changed, you know, more people uh, moved to urban areas or more areas just naturally became urbanized. People took different jobs outside of agriculture. You know, the nature of the farm bill changed. Some of its components changed. Uh, So we think about food and nutrition programs, you know, at least in my opinion, to some degree, these are still farm programs. So the money is spent on helping Americans be able to put food on the table. But these dollars are ultimately trickling throughout the U.S. food supply chain and do reach farmers. So about 85 cents on every dollar we spend on food in this country does stay within U.S. food supply chains. And so these are going to food processors, food manufacturers, and farmers.
0: What kinds of policy gets decided around the around the farm bill? Like, is this where subsidies for farmers from the government come from? and
1: Yeah, so if we think about, you know, what happened in our last farm bill, so our 2018 farm bill, it had 12 titles or 12 pieces of this omnibus legislation. Uh, so one of them was a commodity program. So when you hear people uh, talk about row crops and other types of field crops, corn and soybean, and how they're being uh, subsidized to some degree or have price supports or, uh, you know, programming around uh, providing you know, domestic assurance of uh, production. We can say, you know, these are housed within the commodity title. We do have a conservation title. So, you know, just in your question about how things have changed, you know, conservation has become much more important. So the 2018 Parm Bill does have a conservation title. Uh, Many of the programs that the Natural Resources Conservation Service Division of USDA runs are financed by this portion of the Parm Bill. So when we think about uh, where is there subsidies for high tunnels to extend the growing season where are there subsidies for a variety of agriculture uh, nature-based climate solutions they're coming from this title uh, so you know as times change things change so I believe oh, would it maybe with the 2008 farm bill the energy title, came about. And so now we have a portion of the Farm Bill that helps us think about renewable fuels and bio-based fuels that can be generated through agricultural production. And so it'd be very interesting to see, you know, any add-ons to the 2023 Farm Bill. I hear there is more discussion about creating a more robust section of the conservation subtitle, though. There is also a a rural uh, title, you know, so USDA is also to some degree tasked with rural development. And so many of these things around rural electricity cooperatives kind of fall within these uh, rural development uh, pieces of the Farm Bill. So I would say sometimes they're tangential, sometimes they're very apparent. But, you know, in the broad scheme of things, they are thinking about how can we support rural communities with a variety of different electricity options, Uh, particularly rural broadband is always important. Uh, You know, USDA is looking to make sure all households have access to broadband when it comes to, you know, health and education and just general well-being. So a lot
0: is in there. That makes me think of another question that I had, which is historically it feels like just in terms of the politics that happen around the Farm Bill, that there's often this kind of rural-urban split in terms of like who are the people who are fighting for, like, rural communities and farmers, and who are the people who are fighting for, you know, food assistance and um, that sort of thing. And it it seems to me to be an oversimplification because especially, you know, in terms of food security, rural communities are faced with issues of
1: food insecurity as well. So that is very true. There is a lot of kind of political conversation around rural versus urban, but kind of when we look at the data over the years, we see that at present, many communities that we we, we would consider to be rural actually are not agriculturally dependent any longer. So they're most in most cases manu- dependent on manufacturing for their local economy. So even rural communities still have some uh, distance between kind of their direct connection to agriculture these days. And so I think that's where we see even more politicization perhaps of, this rural-urban divide, when even rural communities say, "Oh, you know, maybe my grandpa farm, but we all got out of it, and you know, we're in manufacturing now." Yeah, and with
0: a lot of farm consolidation, there just are fewer people actually farming. Yeah, <laughs> or who owners of farms anyway.
1: Yeah, and it's it's hard work. Yeah, I feel like uh, to some degree that discount, you know, it's it's hard work.
0: <laughs> yeah, can you say anything more about the politics of the farm bill and how? Um, you know, to me, it feels like food and agriculture issues can really be bipartisan, like everybody should have an interest in the farm bill. But how does it often break down politically?
1: Yeah, so I would say probably there is going to be a big divide politically around this food safety net versus farm safety net. And so, you know, Democratic politicians having a great concern about their constituents and populated urban areas and them having access to food and nutrition resources. You know, despite the fact that, you know, SNAP and uh, food and nutrition programs are dispersed throughout the United States, including rural communities. But, you know, there is this understanding that Democratic politicians will be, you know, more sympathetic to the nutrition programs of the Farm Bill. And at the same time, when we think about the Farm Safety Net, would assume Republican politicians are those who are advocating for, you know, increased farm supports and support of domestic food production.
0: And are there, is there just a lot of lobbying from some of these large agribusiness?
1: Well, yeah, but that's uh, year round, you know, even yeah. non, yeah. <laughs> non-farm billiards. And then across, you know, a variety of different advocacy groups, even organizations, nonprofit profit organizations who are advocating for increased food and nutrition programs have, you know, advocacy activities, you know, lobbying activities to make sure that their, you know, representatives understand they are interested in continued support for food safety net programs. Right.
0: So there's pressure on all sides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but who's in the nicest suit is uh, very apparent. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what is on the table now? So we have one coming up. And is it this year or is it 2024? It's
1: 2023, but I've heard, you know, kind of the split uh, between the House and the Senate, uh, the House being Republican controlled and the Senate being democratically controlled. You know, what will be the politics of getting the Farm Bill pushed through? I think there is some questions there. In terms of what is being discussed right now, I would say the $1.2 trillion elephant in the room is SNAP. So the Congressional Budget Office, every farm bill releases a report on their projected spending for the farm bill. And so the 2023 farm bill is estimated to be the most expensive farm bill in U.S. history over the course of 10 years worth of outlays. So they're expecting that it costs $1.5 trillion for U.S. taxpayers to pay for all of the components of the 2023 farm bill. And of that $1.5 trillion, estimating $1.2 trillion will be spent on SNAP benefits. So this is where you hear a lot of the uh, current discussion around what does that mean for the portion of um, you know, farm safety net programs, so commodity programs, trade programs, energy programs, things of that nature, research and development, um, when the majority of the farm bill, 85% in this case, will be spent on nutrition programs.
0: After our interview, I followed up with Shelley for more context on how this number got so large. She pointed out that the figure includes two increases in benefits due to revision of the Thrifty Food Plan calculation, which determines the maximum SNAP benefits allotment for each household. Longtime listeners might remember a previous episode with Angela Babb, whose research has focused on nutritional inequity in the Thrifty Food Plan and how inadequate it has been for purchasing enough nutritious food to feed a household. We have a link to that episode with Angela Babb in our show notes at eartheats.org. Shelley also noted that SNAP benefits get adjusted annually to deal with inflation, and this is included in this latest figure from the Congressional Budget Office. And just as a reminder, this $1.2 trillion figure is not an annual cost. It is the estimated spending over 10 years. Back to our interview. I, just as you were talking about that, was thinking about how much the pandemic really, uh, (laughs) you know, disrupted and threw a wrench in a lot of things. But I'm just thinking about a farm bill, which has been planned several years in advance, and then you're not expecting the kinds of assistance that farmers and food producers might have needed, nor were you anticipating the kind of assistance that people might need for their household food budgets. And that just had to be dealt with on the fly. How does the Farm Bill deal with something like that? Yeah, that is an excellent question. So
1: when we think about on the agricultural side, there are agricultural disaster assistance programs. So luckily, fortunately, that is somewhat built into the Farm Bill. So when we think about Uh, livestock disaster programs, crop disaster programs. There are these uh, assistance programs that are made available. So even, you know, there's a non-insured crop insurance disaster assistance program. So if you decided not to buy into crop insurance, which would have protected you, there is still a program that is available for you to get assistance from USDA to maintain, you know, what you need to maintain as far as being an agricultural producer. So, typically, CBO is doing these estimates, so we have some idea about how many people would be on SNAP generally, but the pandemic hit, it was unknown, you know, and also one important piece of the conversation now is emergency allotment. So, during the pandemic, most SNAP households actually received an emergency allotment that moved them to the maximum benefit for their household size. So, people were receiving a larger uh, benefit during the pandemic, And this is ending, so all households across the United States won't have that emergency alarm in any longer.
0: So it seems like maybe after the sort of immediate crisis of the pandemic, then those households were like, well, this is great that we have this extra money because now food prices are so much higher. But that's not uh, being taken into consideration in terms of uh, going back to the original amounts.
1: Yeah. So unfortunately, I feel like it was a terrible confluence of things, you know. So food prices are extraordinarily high. Not only were food prices high due to supply chain issues, now we're struggling with the worst avian flu crisis in U.S. history. So I peaked maybe the end of last year, and I think at that point they had culled 50 million birds. And so these were all birds that came out of production, and that's why we see $8 eggs, So it is just a confluence of things that, unfortunately, are causing high food prices. At the same time, we're reducing the food benefits we do give to households in need. Fortunately, uh, USDA does revisit food prices every June, and those new food prices get put into play in October, so the start of every fiscal year. But, you know, inflation had been so high month to month. There was really no way to keep pace with increasing inflation. So inflation is still growing. So we're still experiencing inflation for food at home, but it's not growing to the degree we've seen over the last year. So hopefully that will give households a bit of a break as emergency allotments wind down across the country.
0: What are your thoughts about the way that these two pieces are connected through the USDA and through the farm bill like the fact that the same agency is dealing with agriculture and food assistance like do you does that feel like it makes sense still or yeah i guess from my
1: perspective i would say this is the only thing i've ever known so it makes sense to me i mean i haven't spent any time thinking too far outside the box on this uh, but i would say it does it does make sense because you know as i mentioned For every dollar we spend on food, and this includes people who are receiving food and nutrition assistance, when they take that SNAP dollar to the grocery store with their EBT card, it's still impacting and influencing the U.S. food supply chain, you know, across the spectrum. So to some degree, farmers are receiving some portion of every dollar SNAP recipients are spending on food. So why would we not consider that to some degree having a multiplier effect and ultimately
0: influencing U.S. agriculture? I've just had discussions before about maybe it would be more appropriate to have this in health and human services as opposed to tied to agriculture, because then you have kind of these agriculture policies that are affecting maybe the way you might decide on an appropriate food budget for a household.
1: Yeah, that is a great point. I think, you know, there is a variety of different research across uh, different fields and from different advocacy groups, you know, advocating for more of a nutrition focus. I would say as an ag economist, I'm coming from a maybe perhaps a different perspective. If I were to think outside the box, I would say we should not restrict the payment to food at all. You know, this should not be a food issue. If people tell me they need cash, I should just give them cash and I let them decide do they need cash to get to work. I let them decide, do they need to pay their rent? I wouldn't even house it in Health and Human Services. I would say, you are in need. Here is cash. You are your own being. You're smart and intelligent. You decide what needs to happen in your household budget. Don't let me
0: restrict it to anything. Right, right. Yeah, that does make sense. (laughs) We're going to pause here for a quick break. I'm speaking with Shelley Settles, She's an ag economist at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. We're talking about the importance of the U.S. Farm Bill. More from our conversation in just a moment. We're back. This is Earth Eats, and I'm Kate Young. Agriculture economist Shelley Suttles is my guest today. Let's return to our conversation. So, where are we right now in terms of what what's happening with the farm bill? Oh, that is a great question.
1: <laughs> so, I would say it's it sounds like they're in the early stages. So, you know, the House and Senate committees are gathering; they're meeting. You know, kind of these open discussions are happening. Uh, they're calling people in for testimony on a variety of different sides for both the food and farm safety nets. Uh, so, conversations are happening. From what I understand, there's kind of uh, some fear that the Republican-controlled House will advocate for things that may be untenable or, you know, given the current economic climate, just may be very difficult for households to deal with. So I am uh, very curious to see what happens within, even within the next month.
0: It was so interesting in those early days of the pandemic to see how ready the U.S. government was to help people. And I just sort of had this thought that maybe that would continue. (laughs) Maybe it was a change in the weather that was going to stay.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, uh, at least from my understanding, uh, you know, so at the time I had a project with a food bank in the state, and they were saying that it was really the case of have and have not. So for those of us who could work remotely, you know, we were home collecting the same salary, or in some cases people were getting kind of these... Uh, bonus checks that, you know, they qualified for, but didn't necessarily need. And so they were generous and would make donations to uh, food banks and things of that nature. So, you know, people felt fine, you know, a certain portion of the population felt fine. And then there were others who had very, you know, public facing positions, who perhaps had a chronic disease, they didn't feel comfortable being exposed, had childcare responsibilities. And it just put some portion of the population into an economic spiral and so i think the government could do nothing other than step in perhaps
0: is there any role or like how how do kind of everyday people participate in shaping the farm bill
1: so as i mentioned you know the house and senate have uh, agricultural committees a uh, I think on each of those websites, they ask you to give your feedback and comment. I would definitely recommend, you know, if you've done research yourself, not as a researcher, you know, but just as a private citizen, have some thoughts on a subject, understand the pros and cons, definitely reach out to your representatives and share your opinion so that they understand, you know, there's somebody in the office documenting how residents feel about certain issues. You know, here in Indiana, there's a lot of conversation around biofuels right now. E15, so transportation fuel that's blended with up to 15% ethanol, did not get renewed by the EPA, and so there's some concerns about the environmental aspects of E15 in the summertime. So, my understanding that Midwestern governors and those attorney generals are generals are getting together to discuss how certain aspects of EPA and the federal government in general can think about biofuels, and that's some. portion of agricultural production in the Midwest. So people are advocating for things, um, you know, a variety of different things that are on the table with this farm bill. And I would just, you know, encourage private citizens to do no different.
0: And do they, do representatives sometimes have listening sessions in their communities and, you know, talk to concerned people?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So I imagine probably most policymakers probably have office hours. I know in Indiana, we have several policymakers that come back to Indiana and hold office hours and you can definitely you know I would encourage you to attend those office hours as well but you know I feel like uh, we're also in online age uh,
0: shoot a message can you say just to help us understand the importance of it how do you think the farm bill affects the way that we eat if at all (laughs) that is a very
1: good question so I think given that folks are typically consuming some type of culturally appropriate diet, you know, the farm bill may make that diet more expensive or less expensive. Uh, you know, in my own personal experience, I think moving from Southern California to Indiana, I had to adjust my diet. I would say, you know, is it the fault of kind of what, you know, is subsidized, what agriculture is subsidized in the Midwest for what is subsidized in California? Um I'm not 100% certain. I imagine it is, you know, having an impact to some degree. But also, when I think about the climate, Southern California, you know, is kind of eternal spring. I'm used to wearing shorts on Christmas. You definitely can't do that here. So when we think about, you know, what products, food products are available, fresh fruits are available in the Midwest. You know, it becomes more difficult to kind of have these conversations. Well, we should all be eating a fresh bowl of salad all year round. When realistically, we know that, you know, at times we'll have to import from overseas. At times we'll have to, you know, be making purchases from California and Florida. Um, But, you know, I think perhaps people have to advocate for the diet that they're most interested in and think about how they could be more involved at that at the local and regional level. You know, a portion of my research is also around local and regional food systems. I think a lot is happening in local communities that, you know, Nowadays, the grocery store isn't the sole option of where we can acquire food. You know, there's all sorts of fun and interesting places that we can support. You know, some on occasion, maybe price prohibitive? Or, you know, I know there's some cultural issues around who is patronizing the farmer's market and does your class or your socioeconomic status influence whether or not you're engaging in some of these things. But, uh, you know, most recently, the U.S. uh, Department of Agriculture, USDA, has developed an Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovation. So they are looking to see, you know, there are these local and regional opportunities for people to have a greater influence in what is in their diet, what they're consuming. So I would definitely encourage folks to get involved in what's happening in their community if
0: they're not being best served by what's in the grocery store. Yeah, that was uh, my next question was just about farm bill policy that can support and encourage the development of, you know, more smaller scale farms that have a diversity of crops versus these large scale commodity, you know, corn and soybeans, which is, you know, kind of the typical... Indiana farming operation, and so is the Farm Bill also involved in those kinds of allocations of support for different kinds of farming?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is something that everyone, I think, is concerned about to some degree. Uh, you know, when we think about who the Farm Bill is supporting with these commodity titles, so typically there are what you would call gross income limits, and so, you you know, you can only be making $900,000 On your farm, but you know, nine hundred thousand dollars—nothing to laugh at. But you know, a farm making over nine hundred thousand dollars has to compete with a farm that's small farm that's receiving these larger subsidies more frequently, and so typically they are having to consolidate to be, remain competitive with farms that are receiving larger subsidies. So if we think about subsidizing small farms, there are going to be consequences to that. And a consequence we've seen over the years is consolidation in the rest of the industry to be able to compete when a certain subset of farms are receiving very generous subsidies.
0: Hmm. But are those generous subsidies <coughs> going to not just smaller scale commodity farmers but what about these more kind of specialty crops and you know fruits and vegetables which get called a specialty crop but you know the a, a more diverse yeah So over the years, it has really changed. So there's a horticulture
1: title to the Farm Bill now that used to not be the case. And crop insurance is available to many, many different types of crops now, including specialty crops, which that did not exist in the past. There is some debate, you know, kind of historical discussion around Whether specialty crop farmers wanted to be included in commodity programs, they felt that it would be kind of restricting them, putting them in a box to say, oh, I need to do all these things the way USDA wants me to do when I want to do them my own way. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, USDA persisted, and these uh, programs are available to specialty crop producers as well. And just one thing to mention about crop insurance, uh, for all farmers, it's heavily subsidized. So whether or not you're doing row crops or you're doing specialty crops, uh, the taxpayers pay about 60% of your premiums for crop insurance, and the farmer only pays about
0: 40% as a farm operator. Okay. So I was curious about... I. Recently spoke with some folks with Socially Responsible Agriculture Project, and they're focused on confined animal feeding operations and sort of the health and quality of life concerns for people who live in areas where these large scale operations are placed. And in some cases, it seemed like an environmental justice issue where folks living nearby didn't really have the power or the voice to really stand up against these large-scale operations. And I was wondering if protective policies for just kind of ordinary citizens against big ag, are those kinds of things part of what could get decided at a farm bill in a farm bill? Or are those things really decided on kind of a state level, like those kinds of regulations around KFOs or, you know, air pollution, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. So I would say it depends. Uh, you know, when we think about having a federal government and a state government, a lot is happening. So it really depends. So when we think about air pollution aspects, we have Clean Air Act that's controlled by EPA, very different than USDA. So I think even amongst federal agencies there's, you know, components of what is getting uh, regulated and funded across federal agencies that can become confusing especially for people looking to have solutions to these environmental travesties in their neighborhood. So it, at times can be difficult to navigate there. And then at the state level, you know, there's state departments of ag and state departments of environment. And so are they working together to kind of deal with some of these issues? And so at some degree you have maybe four tiers of a bureaucracy to <laughs> jump through when you are just, you know, a group of residents looking to make improvements in your community so it can become difficult but i imagine you know like the organization you mentioned there are just so many advocacy groups so i would just recommend that people reach out to who is you know in their corner to make sure that they have a broader group of people coming together to advocate for the change they want to see in their community
0: yeah i guess i was just curious to ask you about it because i it feels like uh uh, the kind of issue that a lot of people especially listeners to this show get really upset about and i always try to think about like well what's the larger system and you know you can you can look at local levels you can look at state level but i always just think like well if there was some kind of policy at the federal level then they wouldn't have to have all these other little tiny fights if there was just like look this is the standard you can't do this you know <laughs>
1: Yeah. And then so then a handful of states decide to sue the federal government for order of and say, you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> <How> states rights. <writes.
0: laughs> yeah. So that's yeah, so that's, that, that's uh, mean misunderstanding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the oh, no, I don't understand. really yeah. works, too, because I just I'm just like, why don't they pass a law? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> then we don't have to keep doing this. So yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It's not it's not that straightforward and I'm sure there are a lot of agriculture policies that do get handled at the state level. Yeah. You know, and
1: I think states are so different, so you know, um California, you know, so confined animal feeding that's happening in California looks different than it's happening. Iowa looks different than what's happening in North Carolina. The livestock is different. You know, the communities surrounding are different. The property value in California nearby is a different price. So I think so many things are different. I would definitely, you know, recommend that folks definitely understand what's happening at the state level. You know, likely there is some federal regulation. But, you know, I I would assume that states are considering these issues and want
0: to advocate for, you know, all of their stakeholders and residents. One of the issues that Shelley Settles has researched is agriculture production that's used for biofuels, ethanol in particular.
1: The Trump administration really didn't enforce renewable fuel standard, and so now there's a bit of chaos.
0: And agriculture definitely plays
1: a role as supply as it supplies biofuels and biopower. Yeah, I think
0: that's definitely something that people don't really think about when it comes to crops, is they, they really just think that they're for food and they don't usually think about the the energy component.
1: Yeah. And, I, you know, I talked to students about this in my food policy class. I think U.S. has such an interesting history with ethanol. You know, so ethanol has been um, banned twice in the history of the United States. So during the, well, I guess not banned. So during the Civil War, they taxed it to death in order to pay for the Civil War. At that point, ethanol became so expensive, it couldn't compete with kerosene and kind of fell out of favor And then again, with the prohibition ban, ethanol is essentially alcohol like anything else. We ban ethanol, so no research and development. So we're really playing catch up, you know, from 1979 with the Carter administration saying, oh, we should think about this uh, thing we keep taxing and banning in the last 100 years. So this is the ethanol market we have today. You know, it's kind of heavily based on first-generation biofuels and corn. But, you know, I think as long as we keep an open mind about the potential of uh, biofuels and renewable energy as agriculture being
0: a production source of that, I think it could be interesting. What did you say earlier about biofuels and summertime?
1: In the Midwest, it's corn and soybeans, so ethanol is kind of an important uh, market in Midwestern agriculture and transportation fuel and so the EPA is supposed to make a decision about E15, transportation fuel that's blended with up to 15% ethanol. And the reason that EPA hasn't made a decision yet is that they feel that there are concerns about ethanol in the summertime, that it can increase the levels of smog. And so I think, you know, their scientists and researchers are going back and forth. But they're soon to be past the rulemaking deadline. So there is some concern amongst Midwestern policymakers, uh, governors. Or is it just the Midwest, or is it anywhere where it gets warm? Yeah. So I think in terms of the source of the production, the... Oh, I see. (laughs) I see. So (laughs) who is, you know, the source of the production of the ethanol? It's corn growers in the Midwest. And so they have some interest that there be a market for the corn product during the summertime as well.
0: And did you, did we talk about all the things that you feel like are sort of currently going on with the farm bill? yeah. I think so. Yeah, I just feel like um,
1: SNAP is such a big, you know, I think when that figure came out from CBO. What's CBO? Uh, the Congressional Budget Office that made an estimate about the cost of the next farm bill and how much SNAP would be uh, out of that cost.
0: Um, do you just feel like that number is really going to scare people? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately so. You know, despite the fact that they know, you know, uh, their neighbor is in need. Uh, I think this figure is so high. And, you know, when I talk to my students, you know, us thinking about, you know, the now and the later, you know, when we think about what should we pay for in the now? What can we afford now? You know, what are we limiting future generations for? uh, You know, these are hard questions. You know, I don't have the answers, definitely, but these are things that policymakers are struggling with, you know. So that $1.2 trillion price tag now, when people are struggling, how will we pay for it? Will taxes change, you know, things of that nature versus, you know, well, if we, you know, finance it in some way and then
0: future generations can sort it out. I mean, what I thought you were meant by now and later was, I don't know, I just think about this in terms of taking care of people that it's so much less costly to help people with their rent than it is to deal with a massive homeless population. <laughs> it's so much easier to help people get the food they need than to deal with all of the health crises that happen when people don't have enough to eat. You know, it just feels like like the cost down the road or the emergency down the road could be prevented by just, you know, <laughs> taking care. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: we have a mix of things beyond the Farm Bill, you know, that U.S. government spends money on. So you know, well beyond the farm bill's reach, you know, we're spending money on defense, we're spending money on education, we're spending money on health and human services. There's so many things, you know. So just like a household has to balance their budget or decide what to put on the credit card, you know, Congress is doing that for us. uh, So we have to decide, do we like what they've done with our budget? Yeah, yeah,
0: these are are complex issues and they're not all around food, (laughs) so... Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming in and talking with me.
1: No, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited to check out all the recipes on your website.
0: (laughs) They look so tasty. Great. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. That was Dr. Shelley Suttles. She's an agriculture economist and an assistant professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. We spoke in early March of 2023. For more information and links to resources about the Farm Bill and how to make your voice heard during this important period, visit our website, eartheats.org. relations between China and the U.S. are trickling down into agriculture and more scrutiny into who owns farmland. It became a hot topic in part after the U.S. Air Force determined that a proposed corn mill in North Dakota would be a significant national security threat. Now there are proposals restricting foreign ownership of farmland making their way through Congress and many state legislatures, including Indiana. Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai reports. Fufang USA, a subsidiary of
2: a Chinese company, purchased land near Grand Forks, North Dakota, close to a U.S. Air Force base. North Dakota's two U.S. senators asked for the Air Force to weigh in, and shortly after, the city council voted to stop the project. Senator Kevin Kramer says it was a clear move, given current U.S.-China relations.
0: You know, just within hours or or days of the Air Force letter arriving, China had a, a spy balloon 65,000 feet above Montana.
2: That spy balloon got a lot of attention. A large Chinese spy balloon spotted over the United States. That first Chinese spy balloon was seen flying over parts of the Kansas City area today. Chinese spy balloon over American airspace. That spy balloon and the eventual rejection of the corn mill shined a spotlight on Chinese ownership of American farmland. Senator Kramer, a Republican, is now co-sponsoring two federal bills. Both would limit foreign ownership by giving the U.S. Department of Agriculture more input into potential land purchases. He says it's a big issue for Republicans and Democrats.
0: There's such an overwhelming concern about China's role in America and their, and their intentions that we will get something passed in a strong bipartisan and bicameral way.
2: According to USDA data, foreign holdings of U.S. farmland increased by an average of about 2 million acres a year from 2015 to 2021. But the data also shows that China owns less than 1 percent of foreign-owned land, although experts say there are issues with how that data is collected. It's not just federal lawmakers who want to crack down. There have been a flurry of bills in state legislatures, including most Midwestern states. There's so many proposals. It's insane. Micah Brown is a staff attorney at the National Agricultural Law Center and has been keeping track of the laws and bills in each state. He says that it's an issue that has come up time and time again since colonization, and the U.S. has hit another political flashpoint now especially in 2023 with all these proposals, the proponents of these bills, the lawmakers that are proposing these bills are really saying the reason is national security. Some states are even reversing course. Just 10 years ago, Missouri moved to allow up to 1% foreign ownership of its farmland. That was just ahead of a Chinese company buying out Smithfield Foods, a large pork producer and food processing company. Bill Eigel, a Missouri state senator, is sponsoring one of the 16 bills moving to restrict foreign ownership again. The Republican says food security is the main issue. I don't want China to own our our ground. I, I honestly don't want European countries to be able to buy our ground because that's American ground that is feeding our population and we need to maintain that sovereignty. Keeping land in the hands of U.S. farmers is a major problem, according to Francine Miller, an attorney at Vermont Law and Graduate School. But she says the national attention on Chinese ownership of agricultural land is taking away from the fact that investors in general are driving up farmland prices.
1: The focus on this issue obscures the issues that many of us are trying to work on on improving land access for beginning and people of color, farmers, and people who've been denied access to land in America.
2: The current geopolitical situation, including the war in Ukraine and relationships with China and Russia, is putting a spotlight on foreign influence over U.S. resources. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tesfai.
0: Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Eobon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Samantha Schimmenauer, Peyton Welly, Harvest Public Media, and me daniella richardson
0: special thanks this week to shelly subtles
2: our theme music is composed by aaron toby and performed by aaron and matt toby additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at universal production music our executive producer is john bailey